You're listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Soprano Elizabeth Futrell, tenor Roger Honeywell, conductor Emmanuel Villome, and stage director Gary Griffin are backstage at Lyric. It's probably cliche to say this, but the Merry Widow Waltz is one of my favorite things. But it's, you know, it's very famous and everybody knows it for a very good reason. It's a beautiful piece. It's very easy to feel love while you hear this music. It's just so gorgeous that it, it sort of encapsulates the... Uh, the inner life of the character. It's light, it's enjoyable, it's like meat and potatoes, but in a very fat-free way. <laughs> and at the same time, when you, you distance yourself from it, it's just so well done that you don't feel any shame liking it. So it's just, it's just perfect balance for that. The piece in general uses theatrically a broad range, and that's what's most fun about bringing that together. But the score is, is vast in, in what it covers. Thank you for downloading this episode of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Roger Pines of Lyric Opera of Chicago. We'll be playing an audio transcript of the Lyric Opera Discovery Series session for Lehar's The Merry Widow. For those of you who may not already know about the Discovery Series, it's panel discussions featuring singers, conductors, directors, and opera experts. We do one session per opera, and they usually take place a few days prior to the opening of each production. The Discovery Series is open to the public, and it's a great way to get up close and personal with our artists. You can check out our website at lyricopera.org for dates, tickets, and complete Discovery Series information. We include all of the Discovery Series sessions as part of the Backstage at Lyric podcast. And now, on to the Discovery Series panel featuring Elizabeth Futrell, Roger Honeywell, Emmanuel Villome, and Gary Griffin. I'm your host for this session, and I hope you enjoy it. Good evening. I'm Roger Pines. I'm dramaturg at Lyric Opera of Chicago, and I want to welcome you to the fifth Discovery Series session of the 2009-10 season, devoted to Lehar's The Merry Widow. We have the key players of the Merry Widow team on hand, our leading lady, leading man, conductor, and director. Uh, Ryan Opera Center alumna Elizabeth Futrell has sung more than 15 roles at Lyric. Prior to The Merry Widow, she most recently starred with us in La Traviata, which she is singing this season in San Diego and Louisville. Among her past successes have been highly prestigious world premieres by Tan Dun at the Met and by Andre Previn in Houston and San Francisco. She's been heard at many other major houses, including those of Vienna, London, Munich, and Berlin. She has a large discography, and she can be seen on DVD in a role that she created in San Francisco, Stella in A Streetcar Named Desire. When Miss Futrell sang Mabel in The Pirates of Penzance at Lyric, she appeared opposite the Frederick of Canadian tenor Roger Honeywell. Mr. Honeywell is returning to Lyric to renew their partnership, starring opposite her as Danilo in The Merry Widow, which is his sixth role at Lyric. He, too, is a Ryan Opera Center alumnus and performed here most recently in Dr. Atomic, the opera in which he made his Met debut last season. He's earned international attention as Troilus and Troilus and Cressida in St. Louis, two roles in Santa Fe, The Prince in Tea, and Jeff in the world premiere of The Letter. He's also been heard at the New York City Opera and at the Seattle, Miami, Montreal, and Philadelphia Opera Companies. French conductor Emmanuel Villome debuted at Lyric in Samson and Delilah and opened our 2008-09 season leading Manon. Highlights for him this season include his return to San Francisco Opera for Werther and to the Opéra de Marseille for Sanson et Dalila. In 2008, he began his tenure as music director of the Slovenian Philharmonic in Ljubljana. This season marks his 10th anniversary as music director of Charleston's Spoleto Festival USA. Maestro Villom has led performances at the Met and with the major houses of Los Angeles, Santa Fe, and Dallas, as well as those of London, Paris, Turin, Madrid, and Cagliari. Gary Griffin, Associate Artistic Director of Chicago Shakespeare Theatre, is making his lyric debut with The Merry Widow. 
at CST, uh, where he's directing Private Lives this season. His tenure has encompassed much acclaimed productions of Amadeus and four Sondheim musicals. Highlights of Mr. Griffin's current season have included West Side Story at Canada's Stratford Festival and the national tour of The Color Purple, one of three shows he's directed on Broadway. In addition to the major Chicago theater companies, he's directed off-Broadway for New York City Center's Encore series at Hartford Stage, San Diego's Old Globe Theater, and many other prominent theaters nationwide. So please join me in welcoming to the Discovery Series Elizabeth Futrell, Roger Honeywell, Emmanuel Villome, and Gary Griffin. Now, we have not done The Merry Widow in more than 20 years, so a synopsis is in order. Good. See how I do, ladies and gentlemen on the panel. Keep your fingers crossed. Um, At a party at the Petrovinian Embassy in Paris, Camille de Rossillon confesses his love to Valenciennes, the young wife of Baron Zeta, the ambassador. A guest arrives, Hannah Glavary, the Petrovinian widow whose wealth represents much of her nation's net worth. Zeta, Baron Zeta, the ambassador, is desperate for Hannah to marry a Petrovinian to keep her wealth in the country. To discourage Camille's advances, Valenciennes suggests he marry Hannah. The embassy attaché, Count Danilo, once loved Hannah, but she was then penniless. His aristocratic family uh, considered her unacceptable. Now that Hannah is rich, Danilo refuses to join other men who desire her only for her money. During a party at Hannah's, amorous intrigues abound, the result being that Hannah announces her engagement to Camille. Danilo bitterly retreats to his favorite Paris hangout, Maxime's, where he can flirt with all the girls. Convinced that he loves her, Hannah hosts a party there, where Danilo demands that for patriotic reasons, she should not marry Camille. She and Danilo finally confess their love. Hannah's husband's will stipulates that if she remarries, her wealth would revert to the state. Despite her impoverished future, Danilo is overjoyed to marry her as Zeta and Valenciennes are reconciled. That's right. okay. well yeah. Yeah. right. So, I think we're done. <laughs> was it, it was a good review. Any questions? Yes. <laughs> this is a work that boasts so many individual numbers that are world famous, you know, some of the greatest hits in the whole operetta repertoire. So what are the qualities of the score that you cherish the most? Anyone? <laughs> Don't all speak at once. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would say it's probably cliche to say this, but um, the, the Mary Widow Waltz is one of my favorite things. But it's, you know, it's very famous, and everybody knows it for a very good reason. It's a beautiful piece. Absolutely. And it's, it, it's, uh, it's very easy to feel love while you, uh, while you hear this music. It's just so gorgeous that it, it sort of encapsulates the... the um, the inner life of the character. Uh, certainly, when when uh, when we first well, I shouldn't give it away, but when we when we first waltz, it, it brings back it brings back all the uh, all the emotions that I think that these characters had prior to the beginning of this piece. I mean, music doesn't get any more romantic. Than no, this, it's just say? yeah, right. I, I think that's what I, I love the the heightened romantic quality of the show and just in general is is most appealing. But I, I also love the range of the score that. They're also they're really blatantly comic gems. Every woman and deeply beautiful pieces like Velia, uh, and I think it's 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 wonderful to see. I think the piece in general uh, has uses theatrically a, a really broad range, and that's what's what most fun about bringing that together. But the score is is vast in in, in what it in, in, it covers. Yeah, I think for me what, what is amazing is the combination of the extreme likability, irresistibility of the music with a lightness that is almost unbelievable with a craftsmanship that is extremely clever and well done. So it's light, it's enjoyable, it's like meat and potatoes but in a very fat-free way. (laughs) (laughs) And at the same time, when you, you distance yourself from it, it's just so well done that you don't feel any shame liking it. So it's just, it's just perfect balance for that. Now, Emmanuel and Gary, we are an opera company, but here we are doing for the third time in our history The Merry Widow, which is a classic of the operetta repertoire. So do you think 
that operetta should be taken more seriously by major opera companies and, and regularly included in their active repertoire? Yeah, I, I do. Gary? No, I feel strongly that, it, that it's important because the, I believe, and I think this, this is um, part of what Emmanuel's describing in the craftsmanship of the, of the score, that it's, the material is, is much better than most of us have experienced. At least that was my experience in discovering it, was that tr- um, whenever I work on a piece, I try to imagine what the original creators were doing. And this, I think it takes the skill, the sophistication, the, the uh, rigorousness of, of, of an opera company to realize what the original creator and, well, everyone who created had in mind. And um, the, I think a lot of times these productions are reduced in both respect and and resources, and therefore are not realized for. And I think this this is the, I, I I hope this is the best way you can see the Merry Widow and see it for all its value. Mm. Yeah, I, I think operetta should be included in in, in opera seasons, um, and it, it, because an opera season needs to be balanced, and you can't understand something like Katya if you don't have something to just you know get a little air and have some slack from, from that. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think on, this, on the other hand, what, why should not it be included? Because what? Because it's fun? Because it's light? Because it's entertainment? I don't think these are good enough reasons. Uh, intellectuals have also a right to have fun and to entertain themselves, but in a way that is very educated. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the right piece for that. Uh, so, um, and I think... There has been, you know, certain kind of snobism from some companies uh, over the years over this repertoire that I think is 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 uh, totally wrong and ultimately totally uneducated. Um, you you can uh, in literature people are much more tolerant than this. Uh, you, if you like Shakespeare, you can also like something which is uh, much lighter, or even Agatha Christie, or something else, where the, the 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 literary value is very strong, although the content might not be of the highest spiritual and intellectual value. Uh, and I think that's what we need to do uh, in opera companies. Um, now, you don't want to do only this, but there is definitely room for this, absolutely. I think the criteria for it should be the, the fact that it's good theater. And if, if opera is, if this is good theater, then it has, it has its, its right on the stage. There's, uh, I don't think there should be any argument to it, because it's so well-crafted, as we said. I wanted to ask the two of you whether you knew the piece at the time that you came to this production. Was it music that you grew up with, or did you come to it only much later, uh, it wasn't music that I grew up with. I, I mean, maybe maybe I'd heard the Merry Widow Waltz as a kid, but I didn't know the opera. I didn't know much opera at all as a kid, or operetta either. Um, uh, so I came to it, I guess, I first learned Velia when I was here in the opera center. And I've sung it a lot, just as a one-off piece for parties and things. But I've never sung the opera, and, and I've seen the opera only once. So it's, it's fairly new for me. Roger, when did you come to it? Um, I, I, uh, about six weeks ago. No, <laughs> um, no, no I, I, I jest. The first time I actually heard this was in a ballet form. Yeah, it's I, been done, man. Yeah, in, yeah. Well, I was times. at the National Arts Center. In, I'm a Canadian in Ottawa. And uh, I was doing a play in the theater, and next to it in the opera house slash uh, ballet company, they were doing um, The Merry Widow, uh, the National Ballet of Canada was doing it. And I, and I had a night off, so I went and saw it. And that was the first time I saw it. Um, and then since then, no. I mean, I, I, you know, I literally, all of the music was new apart from the, the, the waltz. Uh, Vilja was new to me when I first started studying the score. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a newbie, I'd say. <laughs> Emmanuel, um, I know that this piece has been performed a lot in, in France as La Veuve Joyeuse, and it's always been popular. Now, I assume that you grew up listening to Offenbach operettas, native operettas, but was Mary Widow part of your frame of reference at all? Uh, before dinner, every day we were singing it. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> no, I, actually, I was born in Strasbourg, as you know, and uh, in Strasbourg, all the the opera uh, operetta repertoire was done in German. So I grew up with the Lustige Witwe, uh, and um, it, which which was which was uh, uh, a lot of fun. Yes, it was. I mean, I heard it probably you know a couple of times there. Um, and it's La Veuve Joyeuse has been played in Paris uh, uh, a lot, and it's respected and loved. Um, but mainly, it, you would have in France usually, like in Germany, in the November, December, you would have the the, the, the operetta, you know. And uh, so most of the time it would be an Offenbach, but sometimes they would have two operators, and then you would have an Offenbach and 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 a Léard. Uh, there, there, there's a lot to say about the differences between Offenbach and Léa. Uh, Léa orchestration is much richer, fuller, more clever, and more, more crafted. Uh, and Offenbach is kind of uh, um, um, a little more bitter and uh, um, empty. You just have, you know, double basses on one side and piccolo, and in the middle it's kind of terra incognita where nothing is happening. And... <laughs> And which, in a way, is, is very interesting. And usually the topics of the, the, the Offenbach uh, operettas are a little more controversial and socially provocative and kind of arrogant and pushy, and which suits the French people, which Offenbach understood very well. <laughs> Um, and although, although Offenbach was, as you know, coming from Frankfurt and, and being German... Um, but I always was seriously uh, in love with that kind of music. There is an immediacy that, that really touched me uh, from the very uh, beginning as, as, as a kid. Now, I'm new to the Merry Widow, which is I, I'm actually it's the first Lea uh, uh, piece I'm doing. I mean, uh, and, and just I'm really, really, really uh, looking forward to having 12 performances or 11 performances of this. Um, and, and I came, it's like, like Elizabeth and, and Roger, um, I didn't have any preconception on the traditions of the piece. I discovered the piece with, with, with Gary, Elizabeth and Roger um, as we were doing it, which I think is very important in that kind of repertoire, just so you still have fun doing it. Gary, you've been very eloquent in talking uh, to me and to others about what makes this piece memorable as theater. What is it about the dramatic component of The Merry Widow that you get most excited about and that you think our audience is going to get excited about? Well, one thing is it's, it's its simplicity, which is, I think, one of the hardest things to achieve in the musical theater because um, a lot of times musical theaters... There's a lot of what uh, I worked with this Japanese movement man called soy sauce that's thrown onto pieces. This piece is very essential and very simple, and and it's it's about love and forgiveness. And you have a challenge to keep this the engine of the piece running, and yet to get to the end, which really is about forgiveness, and yet you, you, it's been snuck in on you. You've had this wonderful time, and you've, you've heard this great music, and you, you've, been, you've experienced dance, and, and yet you've come to the, hopefully the end of the journey, and, and you, you see these two characters face each other, and the great challenge of, of being able to forgive and admit who you are and to fall in love all over again when you might be just a little past the traditional moment in your life when you're going to fall in love, which I think is when it's harder. And uh, that's what was most moving to me. When you have that spine of the piece, then it was, f- then it was delightful to realize how all the mechanics are working to serve that. And that's how I work on a piece. And it was, it's very clean and essential and smart. And there's nothing, there's not a dance that isn't essential to the storytelling. And there are moments that I, I'm knocked out by the colo moment because it's a moment in an operetta that is told through dance, music, and dialogue. And it's not sung, but it's heightened, and it's, and it's absolutely the perfect way to do it. And you realize that Lear was in complete command of theatrics of this piece. And that's... And so following his spirit was what, was, was what made it uh, thrilling to work on. 
Roger and Elizabeth, I wanted to, we, we will talk about your characters in a moment, but I wanted to talk about the singing of these roles of Hannah and Danilo first. What makes singing these two characters different from singing what you normally sing in the standard repertoire? Uh, well, for me, it's, um, this is, I, I think it's pretty much like a baritoner role. It's, it's, usually, it's usually sung by bar- baritones, and I'm a tenor, so it's, that, that's a bit of a challenge um, that I don't ever really get to rip out a high C or something. That's the, that's the, <laughs> <laughs> it's really sad. <laughs> but, uh, I think you should interpolate. That. I'm going to. <laughs> Um, but, I, you know, it's, I approach uh, singing any role the same way. It, it's got to be sort of, you know, uh, text and character driven. So in, 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 terms of, in terms of the way I approach it to, to study it and to learn it, uh, there was really no difference apart from just trying to, to broaden the voice and get it a little bit lower. And I'd say for me, um, my, my role is more like some of the bel canto roles in a way because it's kind of middly and it's very rangy you know it's it's sort of middly and kind of low and then it all of a sudden pops up high and um in sort of a bel canto way so that's the way i've approached it but also following you know it's it it is very text driven we're trying very hard to get to get these these words across we're singing it in english and um uh, even though we'll have titles, you know, we'd like for you to be looking at us <laughs> rather than up there. The reverse ping pong. Yes. Um, so anyway, that's that's sort of been my approach. There's nothing really akin to recitatives, except some of the sort of chatty bits of the music, kind of storytelling bits or recitative like Does it make sense to you that lots of Hannah's have also been Violetta's, which is one of your major roles? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. It's very like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the sound of the orchestra as well. Um, Emmanuel, how would you describe, you, you had said just before that it's a very rich sound from the orchestra, but how do you draw the lehar sound that you want from an orchestra like ours who they're playing this season, Puccini, Guno, Verdi, Janacek, they will soon be playing Donizetti, Berlioz, and Mozart. So how does lehar fit into the scheme of things for them? Right. Uh, this, this is a tough question because um, somehow sound is, is, is a mystery. So there are, there are two answers. One is really the way it is orchestrated and it is, uh, the, the piece itself is, con- is conceived. And when Léa w- um, worked as, as a conductor uh, in the Théâtre and the Vin, uh, where the, the, the Lustig of Itve, the, the, the Mary Widow, was premiered, and he, as a kid, um, he was working in the band of his uh, father, who was a conductor, and the band would play always uh, Strauss music and operata, with, uh, uh, operata music uh, transcribed for, for those orchestras. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a very savvy. He then went to Prague to study composition. He studied indirectly and directly with uh, with Vorjak and with a pupil of Vorjak, who really pushed him into composition. And he studied very, very, very uh, seriously composition. Um, and when he was asked to replace the the composer who was supposed to do the uh, the piece uh, Hollenberger or something like that uh, in the first place, um, he came up with something that for the director of the theater was too elaborate and too sophisticated. And they asked him, well, can you, can you make that a little dumber and a little simpler for the audience? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he refused to do it. Um, and so you have, technically, you have four horns, you have three trombones, uh, two trumpets, which is, which is a lot. Then uh, it makes the harmony much fuller. You have the, the, the woodwinds by two, two flutes, two oboe, two clarinets, two bassoons. Then you need more strings. Uh, and everything gets uh, much more lush, uh, uh, fuller. Uh, but then there is a sense of... of uh, 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 the sound is connected also to the phrasing. Huh? Uh, that means that if, if you are in a valser, you need to really find that Viennese quality in the valser, which is instead of uh, a Parisian waltz, which is mm, papa, mm, papa, the Parisian valser, the Viennese valser is really mm, ta, ta, mm, ta, ta, 
if you exaggerate, the second beat comes earlier, uh, and between the second and the third beat, there is a lot of kisses, champagne, hesitation, uh, uh, and 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 a lot of fantasies, and then you go back on your foot, and and but the next one is already ready to take off. Um, so you need to find that, and it's it's a work you need to do with the orchestra once more, thinking of the connection of all these elements, the orchestration. The phrasing, but I think the phrasing is the main the main issue. And the lyric orchestra has been has been great. I mean, we have worked now a lot with this Sanson and with this Manon, and also this is the same orchestra that plays very often with Grand Park, where where I perform often. So we we trust and know each other, and we have done a lot of uh, repertoire together. That's very different repertoire. So it's a, it's sometimes it's an act of faith when you ask everybody to be wrong together, because basically. <laughs> A Viennese waltz is being wrong, but you need to be together. It's a rubato, which is really sneaky. Mm. Um, so so it's, it's, it's difficult because you need to let them play, and at the same time, you really need to conduct and say, well, next game is going to be in that field, and we have better be together in that field. Uh, so that, that was a, a lot of fun. Um, I think the English challenge we had, and maybe we're going to talk about this later, um, the fact that the music was phrased first for German um, and then having to change this into English added a layer of challenge that was very interesting for us in terms of phrasing. I wanted to talk uh, also about the dramaturgy of this piece because you all have seen a lot of operettas, I'm sure, where you felt the plots were sort of insane. Um, <laughs> And Gary, clearly you feel differently about the dramaturgy of this piece. So I assume you feel that it's significantly more satisfying than most of the operetta repertoire. I think it's grounded. I, I think it does get silly, but we get silly when we're in these moments. Mm-hmm. I think it's, 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 about, it's about in the way that the Shakespeare comedies, those characters behave in extremely ridiculous ways. But it has to be somehow grounded. I mean, I think that's what we were we've worked on and what was appealing to me, it, it doesn't, uh, certain operetta plots are very formulaic. I mean, even Gilbert and Sullivan, you can, you can basically, mm-hmm. they change the locale, but the structure and the way characters work is, is, very, is very similar. Um, this piece was based on a play, The Government Attaché, and actually the play was more about Danilo. I mean, it was, it was actually, he was the protagonist of the, of the original play. The play was not very successful. As often happens in musicalizations of pieces is a flawed work often works well to musicalize because somehow in the musicalization and taking it and adjusting the, the, the power shift it will it come it it comes to life. That was and, and learning that history was also appealing to me in that it had had it had, had been it started as a, as a as more of a boulevard comedy. Um, so it had that grounding. Now I want you know things the, the characters get a little insane in the second act, particularly when we're out in the out in the in uh, outside at the night as the moon gets bigger. But uh, it's 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 grounded in in in, in clean. In, in clean text. Let's talk a little bit about these two characters of Hannah and Danilo. Elizabeth, as far as Hannah is concerned, what's most important to her in life? Oh, that is a hard question. Um, well, I, don't, I'm, I think what's most important to her in life right now in this story is getting things ironed out between the two of them. I mean, she's really tormented by the fact that that uh, that they have so much unfinished business between them, and um, you know, we sort of talked about whether she's come to Paris actually looking for him uh, or not, and, and that you know can go either way. But she's she's ready to to do what it takes to sort of get to the bottom of you know the the end of their relationship as it was before. Have you thought about what the qualities are in him that attract her? I have thought about that, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Don't tell me. (laughs) Um, You know, I I think she loves loves sparring with him. She loves his wit. She loves the fact that they, they seem to be equals 
and intellectually, I would say, and um, and she's she's very attracted to that. She's also attracted to the fact that he's handsome and and winning and charming when he wants to be, and um, yeah, those things. How does she go about getting him? Well, I mean, you put it that way. I'm not sure that that is exactly what's happening, although that's what happens. Um, <laughs> she she uses jealousy, uh, tries to make him jealous. Um, that seems to be a big card. Well, <laughs> she also... She rents Maxime's for the evening. I she mean, does. She tries to. She tries to please him, <laughs> as it were. Yeah. Roger, what's most important to Donnie Lowe? I, you know, to be honest with you, I think nothing at this point. I think no. I mean, I'm quite serious. He, I think he's lost. He's gone. To, he's gone to Paris. He's he's lost the love of his life, and I think he's hiding. And he's going to become a wastrel. Uh, and I think. She is, is his salvation, and he realizes that as soon as he's... Not as soon as he sees her, but he realizes this is, this is my salvation here. And, and um, you know, if she didn't show up, I don't think he would ever find true love, and I think he would just, he would just sort of fall apart and, and uh, you know, spend every night at Maxime staring at the grisettes and, you know, and all that has... To, <laughs> we, Anyhow, um, which is not terribly bad, but uh, no, I think I think that no, nothing. He, you know, at, at this point, he's lost. We know that he's not attracted to her money, as he says many times. So, what is he attracted to? What is he attracted to more than the fact that she's beautiful and glamorous? Um, well, I think that I think I think it was a life together as uh, growing up together uh, in Petrovina. I think that they shared an awful lot. I mean, we've we've never really sat down and talked about you know point to point what what our backstory was. But I, I can imagine that they were great great friends growing up as kids. You know, maybe uh, even teenagers, and then that they they shared a great love for each other. But then uh, you know, with with family circumstances as they were, and aristocracy as it is, or as it was, or as it is. Um, you know, he was just a victim of, of, of that. He goes through a really emotional time in the last ten minutes of Act Two. Does it help in doing that scene um, that you come to this role after significant experience as a professional actor? Well, I, I'd, I'd like to think it does, but I'd, I don't know if that's true or not. I, I uh... You studied acting? <laughs> <laughs> I teach it. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, it's a, it's a great journey. That scene is a is a terrific journey for the for the for the character. And and um, uh, I, just because of the nature of what I've done before, I, I was given certain tools to be able to investigate it a little bit more. Maybe that other uh, that other singers may not, or the, uh, many singers do. It's just uh, I I've been able to to put moments together for myself that I can key into emotionally uh, and and uh, I don't know what I, I, singers come come to their job so many different ways I have an acting background and that's the way I look at it Gary in the operetta repertoire it seems to me that this Hannah Danilo relationship is in a whole different world as far as complexity and believability and really total appeal to the audience. So what's most important to you in exploring this relationship on stage with Roger and Elizabeth? I mean, the dynamics of this relationship. Well, a lot of it was playing against the end. And uh, I think to, to, to try to keep their to, at risk that this could not happen. I mean, we know the end. So we try to, I was, you know, we were trying to constantly create obstacles. So you could hopefully, you could be concerned that it wouldn't happen. I happen, the, the, the moment you mentioned the, the finale of Act Two is maybe one, maybe dramatically my favorite section of the piece, largely because so much happens and it's inhabited. And it, it What's challenging in doing operetta, or I guess this could be challenging in any form of this, but it's the versus presenting those moments versus inhabiting them. And I think that's what we really tried to make it feel that these, this is a public event 
They're using the fact that it's happening in front of people to challenge each other to come clean. And, and so it, it raises the stakes dramatically, um, enormously. But it's, it's playing against the inevitable love story that you're not, you're not sensing in the first... I mean, even though you may know, oh, these two are going to get together, what incredible machinations are going to happen to get them there. If you do, if you, if you, even if you buy that in the beginning, you sit up hoping, well, how is it going to happen and who's going to give in first? Because these two people are not characters who surrender or certainly don't surrender easily and they are very smart and complex and they play very complicated improvisations with each other. And, uh, and it's been great, frankly, and you, you mentioned that both Roger and Elizabeth are excellent actors and they approach the material with the intelligence of, of acting, of, of, that, that making the acting truth is key and not just that how do I look and I'm presented, but how am I inhabiting it? And, that's, and I think you experience the difference when you're watching something that you believe is, is actually occurring versus we're showing it to you. I can't think of a relationship in operetta that is quite like this. I can't either. Yeah, it's really, it's very special in that respect. Um, Emmanuel, The Merry Widow has one major resemblance that I could think of to another opera that we're doing this season very soon, actually, the elixir of love, in that we get a lot of character out of a series of major duets. There are six of them, I believe, in Elixir, and in this opera there are five. There are three for Valenciennes and Camille, and there are two for um, Hannah and Danilo. So can you give us an idea of the different styles that Lehar is using as he goes from one duet to the other and the way these characters emerge? Well, the, the, once more, this is always very smartly done and he's kind of playing with all the musical possibilities first that he has. So he needs to have a march, he needs to have a polka, he needs to have a, a waltz or even outside of those duets, uh, a mazurka. Um, for the first duet of uh, Valenciennes and, 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 and Camille, um, it has it starts on a, on an upbeat, which is I think so revealing of the kind of relationship those two are. You know, they are a little off, but that's <laughs> where they they, they they want to be, uh, and they entertain this idea that maybe this is going somewhere, and that's what excites them. And once more, it's just it's nothing. I mean, even dramatically, I think what is interesting in that piece is that it's we can all relate to this nothingness. These people are um, making their life, and it maybe it's sometimes painful, or it's what excites them out of situations that are not that tragic. I mean, definitely not Macbeth or Yenufa or anything like that. And that's why we can relate to this too. Uh, and and the way it's exactly what Gary was saying. The way there is a, a huge detour to something that seems so obvious and so simple is what makes it relevant to us. Um, and once more, then, to answer your question, because you like questions to be answered, uh, <laughs> it starts on an upbeat. And it's, they just say, oh, isn't it nice to be together? But maybe we cannot be together. Uh, but maybe we should be together. And that's it. And, and for that, you have a very uh, a rhythm that's just jumping all over the place. It's very young. It's very witty. But ultimately, it's full of desire. It's full of life. It's full of tenderness. And that is extremely, extremely appealing and, and contagious. Um, and, and technically, he uses uh, once more offbeat rhythms. He uses the percussion in a way that's going to always push things forward. Um, then when things get a little weirder and ambiguous between people, um, in, in, in duets between Anna and, and, and um, uh, um, Danilo or Valenciennes and Camille, there is a polka, and the polka is a little more connected to the Eastern world, and it's a little more dubious and ambivalent, and it can allow for some rubatis uh, and uh, 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 double meaning and ambivalency, and he's using that. And then the waltz is, as literally Danilo, I think, says it during the, the, the third act, um, the waltz is the excuse for just abandon of uh, love and, 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 and kind of really um, 
indulging into what the desire can inspire to us human people. Uh, what is interesting is when Danilo is totally furious at the idea that uh, Hannah is going to go with that stupid French guy, uh, um, he, he tells a story within the story with the rhythm of a waltz, on a waltz. And there was this story, this is not my story, of uh, these guys who went to another and, you know, they didn't really like it because what you would really like is, and so on and so on. And here you have this ambiguity of the walls with this character and all these, these movements where someone is not really saying what he wants to say, but you understand what he wants to say. And musically, it's kind of, okay, I'm not going in that direction. Up, oh, I'm going in that direction. And technically, it's brilliant the way it does this. So I would totally agree with, with, with what Gary was saying. This story is about very simple things. And at the same time, these things are very true, and we can relate to them. And the, the way, on the other hand, uh, uh, Lea and the librettists have con- constructed uh, the telling of the story is incredibly smart and sophisticated, and the way it's translated musically is extremely smart and sophisticated. And it's a lot of fun to do. Um, I must say it has been a lot of fun also to do it with uh, uh, people who have this integrity in what they do, like uh, Elizabeth and Roger to a certain point. Uh, 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 <laughs> <laughs> and, and, what have and, I and, done? And, no idea. And, and, and Gary, <laughs> Gary, with his savviness and the way the way he, he, he really actually understood this mechanic, which is sometimes very complicated of relationship between the music, the libretto, uh, the dramatic moment, the words. And he has taken exactly that structure and um, treated it so seriously that it totally makes sense in front of you as it's developing itself. Uh, and, and that was, I mean, there was not one single uh, moment that we didn't enjoy doing this together. That's wonderful. Gary, we haven't really talked up to now about all of the musical theater experience that you are coming from and in going into this experience. How did directing the previous musicals that have been part of your career helped you in, uh, in working on The Merry Widow? Um, I, I've only done one major production of an operetta. It was it was the New Moon in in, uh, in New York. And what was funny about that experience was I, I went there to do it, and it was it was a large production for this company. And when it was over, I, I said to the the producer, I said, well, I'm, "I'm really glad you know that you asked me to do this." And he, I said, I'm, "I was just curious why." And he said, "Well, we asked everyone else, and they wouldn't take it." <laughs> so, um, uh, I, and I understood that when it was over, only because it's it. it it's, uh, it, it, but it introduced me to the form, and uh, and because there's a there's operetta is this has this place between musical what became what we know as as more standard musical theater, and had had evolved from from pure opera that that uh, I didn't know a lot about, and I think doing certain. You know, I, ha- I had done a little night music, which is a Sondheim piece, which is which is very operetta-like. Um, I, I mean, I think Sondheim was was having fun with the form in, again in a very serious story and a very was a, and yet he I think he felt the lightness would be excruciating mm-hmm. and was something that was great to I, and I felt like that piece. Was uh, 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 that I, that that quality was something that I hoped to have happen with the that you can experience it on a very light level, but if you look underneath, there's a lot of pain and a lot of and a lot of of, of loneliness in these stories, and uh, that wasn't even true. The New Moon was was a, is a, is a, uh, an Oscar Hammerstein libretto. and it's and it's you know stout-hearted men, and it's a lot, but it's also it's about Freedom, and it's about the about danger when you oppress, and it, it really has it. Has, so I I'm always excited if I if there's if, if if I can't find that thing underneath, it's it's not there. But I have to say, actually, what helped me maybe more on the Merry Widow than any of the music theater was doing uh, Fado, because I've worked a lot on on Fado, and I I I. I if um, you put me in prison and said you can only direct one thing the rest of your life, I think I would do Fado, because uh, it would 
it, it's, it's this math problem that keeps evolving and you learn more and it, and it, it, it reveals more. But it's, it, the mechanics are airtight and you have to understand them and honor them. And the, the three-act form, which this is a three-act piece, and how you evolve the three acts and how you build your, your, the structures, I think, was most helpful of, any, of my experience in, in realizing The Merry Widow. We should return to the music for a few minutes. Elizabeth, the number that many of us love the most in this piece is your solo on Act Two, Velia. We all know, <clears throat> excuse me, we all know the refrain, but I don't know that we all know the verses. I mean, what is she actually singing about in Velia? Um, she's, this is at her a Petrovenian party that she's, that she's throwing, and so she's trying to uh, infuse the the evening with with uh, the folk songs and the folklore of Petrovenia. And she has folk dancing, and there are dances before and after Velia. Um, and Velia itself is, as she describes it, one of one of the best known folk songs. And um, it's about um, a, a wood nymph, and um, she is seen by a huntsman who um, approaches her and she, she sort of lures him in and they have this, this moment together, um, passion, kissing, bliss, and then suddenly she disappears. And he is lovelorn for the rest of his life. And that's basically the story. And um, the significance in, in our, our version of The Merry Widow is that, you know, she actually, the significance I've taken on is that she feels that she may be love lorn for the rest of her life. Um, so it suddenly, it suddenly resonates with her as she's singing it. And it becomes very sad and, and very poignant for her in the middle of this festivity. And she sort of has to extricate herself from the, from the happiness of the moment to, to get, pull herself back together. But it's a, it's, a, it's a gripping moment for her, actually, that she faces what could be. Funny, you know, you never get. I never get tired of listening to it, and it's a very, it's so moving the whole moment, don't you think? Yes, I do. Yeah. There's another number that, in in enormous contrast with that, it's uh, one of the ensembles in this piece, the liveliest one, and that is the Weibermarsch, the septet, where Danilo and Baron Zeta are joined by various diplomats, and they're singing, they're commiserating about women and how difficult it is to deal with them. So, Roger, what, <laughs> what is the basic uh, sort of spirit of that, uh, of that piece? It's a deeply moving piece. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It's so deep. Um, well... Well, it's just the universal question that a bunch of guys are around going, they don't understand women because as soon as you, you think you have the understanding, they change the mercurialness of them. Um, and it's a, it, it's a terrific, it's a terrific piece because it's seven guys and we're being really butch and doing a can-can. <laughs> um, uh, there's nothing really deep about it. It's, it really just is a, an exploration of, of uh, the madness of trying to figure out the opposite sex. And, and really, that's all there is to it. You know? Emmanuel, what is that piece like musically? It's fun. Uh, <laughs> and it, as its name uh, indicates, it's a march. That means, you know, this is something... The march, there is not much room for, for change of tempo. It's just something that goes, and, and you can't resist it. And, and it's, um, the idea of the piece is, you know, you can't escape the women, but you, at the same time, you will never be able to catch them. <laughs> and there is this movement of... Yeah, there is a drive in the whole thing. That's very interesting. Um, and it's what is once more musically it's very smart first of all to have seven guys together but still it's not totally a chorus uh, I don't there are not many examples of this in the history of music um, and then um, they try to mimic you know what women want and it's always the same music but the phrasing has to be different so it's variation on a rhythmical theme that is always the same 
uh, an harmony that's always the same, but a phrasing that has to be different. So all of a sudden, there is this very cultured vision of something that's actually totally stupid, people in the locker room talking about stupid, stupidity of women, you know? So um, it, it, um, it's a great, great number. It's very uh, exciting. And in once more, it gets a little over the top, but enough over the top that we still connect to it. Um, and um, it's a moment of silliness um, that can go actually very far if the director allows it. Um, uh, and, and he will. Um, and, and, but, but musically, it's just, it's just so incredibly, genuinely crazy. And it's fantastic. You just can't resist it. So, Gary, how are you planning to stage it? <laughs> Other than putting, you know, having these seven guys do a can-can. Well, we and our choreographer, Danny Pelzig, it, it begins as a scene, and even musically, it stays scene-like until the moment, there's a moment musically where it's clear that they have reached a place emotionally where they're going to go into a musical event that is, <laughs> it, you know, it's that moment we know what to do, and the guys begin to do the, the behavior, and seeing the guys, it's... I think when, what we talked about is it was maybe if they inhabit the what these women do, they might understand them better. So that's what's what what makes it fun. It's also just structurally, dramatically, it's it's what I call a palate cleanser. You you come in and it it releases you from everything for a moment, allows you to spin off into that, and then go back into the story. And it it it. it you know, it sits in between two crucial scenes between Danilo and, and Hannah. So it also uh, takes you there. And in Shakespeare, it's like Shakespearean clowns in, 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 that come in and very wide, you know, take you there and then you're gone. And it's delightful. Just as much as in Deflator Mouse, well, actually, maybe more than in Deflator Mouse, spoken dialogue is hugely important in this piece. So, Roger and Elizabeth, are there particular challenges in this dialogue that have made it, made preparing it? especially interesting, especially exacting for the two of you? I think any time you do dialogue, it's, um, you know, you have to be exacting. And it, and it takes, a, this was something we, I was talking about before, and I've been saying this, uh, it's, it's, sometimes it's more difficult to do pieces in English, although it's obviously my, my first language, well, maybe not obviously, but it is my first language. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when, when you're doing things in English, um, or when you're doing so- so- something, say, in Czech or in Russian or in, uh, in Italian, it's obviously not my first language. And I don't have any choices when I come to playing, uh, playing uh, an aria or a scene with someone. There are no other choices because I don't know other vocabulary in that language to make up on the spur of the moment. So I always come out with the same words. In English, my intention as an actor can be very clear, but I have a, a vast array of words that I can use and phrases that I can use. So, yes, that's, that was the challenge, is to, to be precise with the, with the language. Now, I mean, that's what I did for, for 14 years before I started singing, so, so I have ways of, you know, getting it straight and, and learning my lines. Um, almost. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, no, I, I was, my wife's an actress as well, so I, I, was, uh, I, I worked with her for, for maybe uh, a week. We would run lines while we made dinner and things like that. So it was, uh, it was great. Yeah, for me, I would say, um, because I really am a trained singer, what I do is sing. And I very rarely get up in front of an audience and and speak dialogue. Just maybe I can count on one hand the number of operas, Magic Flute. and Pirates of Penzance. Pirates of Penzance. We had some great scenes in that, too. Yeah, we did. Uh, (laughs) But so for me, it's like, you know, I've trained all my life to be the quarterback and suddenly I should be the receiver. You know, mm-hmm. I, it's, you know, I've, I've got a certain skill set and they do translate, but, but they're different. They're very different, uh, very different skills. Um, so I have relied very much on Gary um, to, to sort of guide me and help me uh, find my voice and my character. Um, and Roger has helped a little bit too. <laughs> now, I'm wondering, Gary, if you and Sheldon Harnick, who prepared the English language version, uh, have had any major discussions about the dialogue even before rehearsal started. We we actually edited a lot from the previous version. That um, I mean, they were small edits, but they were 
there were things to clean the lines of the dialogue. And uh, it's it's that in in the relationship between what we refer to mostly musical theater book and what is underscored or, or what is then sung, that that relationship ha- it's like a plane taking off. You know, it has to it has to you you know you're wa- it has to exist on the runway, and then there's the point where you lift off and you then you are you know in the air, and that build is very very tricky because you how the the, the book has to have flavor. It gives you a lot of information and, and it gives you plot, but it also has to have the clues of flavor of the language that are going to be reflected in the lyrics and then but also sit well with the text and that's one of the that was one of the challenges obviously of of creating the text for it sheldon is uh in musical theater one of the really premier professional lyricists who has spent his life as a lyricist and he and one of his cha- talents is it's, he's a in, in and I say this with great respect. He's a very plain lyricist in that the language is therefore allows the emotion in the music and the lyric to the lyric to stay lyric and not reach the land of poetry because once the lyric becomes poetic, it it distracts you. It takes your mind. You have to think. Oh, what, what did that mean? It has to be simple enough to allow the music to reveal the poetry in the event. And that's one of the reasons I was happy to, because I've worked with Sheldon's work before, and and I know him that it it would it would support the the score the the music, and so um, we but we we worked a great deal because I was um, putting across a lot of dialogue in a large space is challenging, and. Uh, and that you, you know, that you know, sometimes you sit, you know, we've all felt that we suffer through the dialogue scenes. And it was important to me that they were building to get you to those musical moments and also engaging you. And that there's humor and the flavor of the, of the style is in the humor and the jokes. Um, someone told me about a rehearsal of yours the other day where you got a particular response out of, I'm trying to, th- you asked... Dale Travis, who was playing Baron Zeta, <laughs> to do something unexpected just so that you could get a particular response out of his colleagues, and it succeeded wonderfully. Can you, are you able to I retell? won't quote it exactly, okay. because, well, anyway. There's a, he has a line in, in, in what is to be the Petrovinian language, and, and he, because he's gotten so upset, and it's one of those things that's actually a great example of this. He is, he's emotionally so upset that he speaks to her in pure Petrovinian because he believes his wife is, is cheating on him, and he goes off. And then there's a, a shocked reaction in the crowd. Well, I wasn't... Uh, the, the reaction in the rest of the company was very muted and bored. I was bored. And I pulled Dale aside, and I said, this time I want you to say in English the most vulgar thing you can say about her in that moment. Let's just get that reaction. Well, he did in the cast. You know? um, and I said, There's it. that's it. That's what you have to, to do. And it's a fun... I, that's what I love most about my job. I love most of that because because seeing that that thing happen and it's real. It's there's a moment where the men sing, um, women, 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 and it was. And I said, just once sing, help, 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 and all of a sudden they they had a, you know. It, so then that that was it was. It, and I have to say, this company was fantastic in taking those experiments, and and it makes it joyous to come to work and do that. Now, this audience will remember a very successful German-language Fledermaus that we did um, a couple of seasons ago after having presented Fledermaus three previous times in English. And our two previous Merry Widow productions were both in English, as is this season's production. So I wanted to ask both of you, Emmanuel and Gary, were there any discussions about German, or was it always going to be English from the start? I think it was always uh, English. There was not a, a formal discussion about it. I think it's very important to have, like Elizabeth or Roger, I don't remember, was saying at the beginning, this direct contact with the, with the audience. So the dialogues have to be uh, in English. Then to switch the dialogues from English and singing German doesn't disturb me so much, but it can be, feel a little weird for some people. And... and the immediacy, I think, is 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 what really counts. Um, 
there are very strong arguments also for doing it in, in, in German because in some time, as brilliant as the translation can be, uh, the rhythm doesn't exactly fit and so on. But working that challenge was, was also very interesting for us and actually could tell us something about the piece and, and help us uh, think about the piece. So it, it seems nowadays kind of an obvious choice to me. This is a new production, and we haven't talked at all about the visual side. So, Gary, I know that your team did a lot of research into the Paris of the Belle Epoque. So what did they come up with as a basic idea for presenting this incredibly glamorous environment in which this piece takes place? Well, we really looked, again, in three-act style. We, we, we wanted, uh, actually, each act to have a distinctive feel. It was more about uh, the sensuality that we, we thought the piece contained. So the first act um, what, what takes place in an embassy and uh, in, the, in the waiting room of an embassy gone the way into a ballroom, the arrival area. And, uh, and there's a great deal about riches at stake. And, and formality. And so we, and uh, Dan Osling, our designer, came up with this environment that's a very, it's, it's a very silver, you'll, and can, and actually very transformative space that uh, we arrive in and meet the world of the characters. And then we go to Hannah's home at night. And we thought it was very important in that piece that we went from formal city to nature and the moon and it's and it's a natural and a, and a shockingly different environment that that opens the mind and the heart and the soul to what what's possible and so there's strikingly different worlds and the moon becomes a big character in the second act which we we wanted a to huge feature character. You know, a huge character and and grows on us then the third act we go to maxime's and uh there are choices about whether you want to actually... There's one choice to present it where Hannah refashions her home as Maxime's or whether she rents Maxime's. We thought it would be fun to, to go there and, 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 and really immerse ourselves in the world and the land of the grisettes. And we thought by that time everyone's relaxed and loose and, and, it's ever, and, and, and um, it really is an earthy... It sort of was a culmination of the journey was to get to Maxime's, and 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 you would sense the, that we'd taken you through all of those. So we looked a lot at Toulouse-Lautrec and Degas and um, and Dan and sort of come up came up with our own. But it was really about the feel of the acts that was most important, and to be very non-literal about it, uh, so that the characters also in every environment, it's how the characters pop and arrive, and, and, you know, are, are, um, are presented in each piece. What sort of costumes do the two of you have? I love it. I'm wearing a lovely floral gown in the first. <laughs> no, I, uh, beautiful. They're just gorgeous. These costumes are really extraordinary. Elizabeth looks fantastic. She does. Oh my god! Um, and I and I have a lovely uh, tuxedo at one point, and then I won't tell you about my second costume. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they're just beautiful, and and I think they're they're true to the, true to the period, and and yeah. just beautiful, elegant lines. Yeah, they're gorgeous. They're, they're Mara Blumenfeld who designed them um, has pays such attention to detail, and they're just beautiful. If you could see them up close, too, they're gorgeous. But they also read beautifully in the house. Um, my first costume is black, um, in true widow style, um, but very elegant and very very beautifully decorated. Now, in Act Two, sometimes she wears a sort of variation on a folky outfit, but you have a formal gown for Act Two, right? Yes. Um, the only folky element is a sort of a floral wreath, wreath, uh, uh, sort okay. of you know that I wear for Velia. Um, and what about at Maxime's? Maxime's, it's a it's a gorgeous red sort of velvet, um, very saturated, beautiful. Now, Emmanuel, have you been to Maxime's? I have never been to Maxime. Uh, uh, oh, uh, yeah, I know, I know. Um, it, there, maybe there's a Maxime in Chicago somewhere. Uh, it, it's a big brand. Actually, I've been into Maxime in Tokyo. Uh, uh, there's a Maxime in Tokyo, uh, but but I I, I I I drive a lot in front of Maxime. But actually, actually, Maxime is totally a myth. 
and 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 there is no dancing uh, uh, theater in Maxim, for instance. It's just a restaurant, and we it's it's not about the actual Maxim. It's the idea of Maxim. This is the Viennese idea of Maxim, which is total indulgement in 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 the pleasure of uh, the mouse and and the rest. Uh, and 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 so I think I should never go to Maxim. <laughs> <laughs> My idea of it actually comes from Gigi. Yeah. Um, now, in conclusion, is there any other operetta in the repertoire, not just Viennese operetta, but any um, language operetta that you would like to do one day? Any of you? <laughs> yeah, Das Land des Lächens is, mm-hmm. is a great piece, but. Any of the American stuff? Roger, do you crave student prints? Uh, no. <laughs> well, I don't know if it qualifies as an operetta, but we were talking with, uh, with Gary. I would love to do The King and I. Uh, just, uh, I just I would love to sing it too, actually. But <laughs> I don't know if... Is that an offer? Oh. Or? <laughs> But Gary, are you ready to direct The King and I? So, Emmanuel, yes, can duck actually, it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've run out of time. I want to thank this wonderful panel very much and wish them all the best for The Merry Widow. Thank you. You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org. <laughs>